a lot of it will be conversion growth, right? To see people who uh, do not know Jesus come to know Jesus. And so we're in the process of helping to kind of train, you know, what are we calling people to in the Christian faith? What is the very foundation that we're saying? If, if you, if you uh, have an interest in Christ or, hey, come to know Jesus, what foundation are we giving them in terms of the reasons of why they are coming? I, I actually grew up in Georgia. I am not a, a, a Yankee by, um, by a native. I'm a Southerner, redneck, if you know, whatever you want to call me. And um, I, I saw a lot of um, reasons to come to Christianity that um, later in life, as, as I uh, learned and I, I grew, right, I I understood that the unbiblical nature of so much of it, whether it be morality, there's so many different reasons why people say, hey, you'll have a better life, come to know Jesus, or whatever it is. And so this is the reason we're trying to hone in. So today, this morning, um, I kind of got some of the teachings we've been doing over the summer and kind of distilled them here. And uh, I want to ask you guys, uh, you know, that kind of question. If, if, if we're on mission, we're all missionaries here, right? You're missionaries in Windsor, Colorado. Uh, what are we calling people to when we, come, when we say, come to know Jesus uh, what foundation are we giving them? If, if, if we're discipling people, what foundation are we building for them in terms of the, the reason and purpose, um, the foundation of their faith? And so Psalm 63, I, the reason why I, I chose this psalm out of the multitude of psalms in Scripture, uh, this psalm is very special. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, is his favorite psalm. One of the church fathers, um, Christentum, I think, he, he said that Christians should read this every single day. It, says, it has a very important um, place in the Psalter. Um, David, I'll give the backstory here. Um, he is running from his son, Absalom, trying to kill him. Absalom is after him. And uh, all this is happening because David, if, if you, know, you know some of the biblical story here, you know, years prior, David had uh, committed adultery with a uh, woman, right? And when he, this is like Jerry Springer on steroids kind of story here. You know, he gets her pregnant and she's like, you know, hey, hey, honey, I'm pregnant. And he's like, oh no, we have to kill your husband. And so he does that. And then um, all, all when it goes down to it, uh, God tells David, because of your, your actions here, your family's going to be a disaster. Like if, if Jerry Springer had a show in that day, they would be like the all-stars um, in ancient Israel. It was just a, it was a train wreck of a story of his family. But David maintained his faith throughout it. And so in this right here, his son Absalom uh, kind of created a coup and wanted to overthrow his father from the throne. So he gathered up some people from Israel and uh, he basically chased David out of town. So David is in exile at this point, right? And he has his people. Absalom has his people. And David retreated to the wilderness of Judea. And he's hanging out. He's probably sleeping in a cave. He doesn't know if his son with his army is going to come over the cliff, you know, over the, over the horizon any moment to attack where he's at to try to kill him. And he pens this psalm, right? And he bites this psalm. And so what I'm going to argue from reading this psalm is that the very nature of David's faith um, is not requiring, uh, it, it's not circumstantial. The foundation of it is, is far deeper, far greater, far richer, uh, f- far, far more in depth. And, and the, the, the nature of that faith is what I want to drive us to, and ultimately we're going to look at Christ and how Christ uh, ultimately fulfilled uh, and was, he even had a much greater faith than David exemplifies here in this psalm. So let's just start this. That's the story. David's probably sitting in the cave. He's writing this stuff out. Uh, he's sleeping on the, you know, on, the, on the floor, waiting for his son to go kill him, and he writes these words. Oh, God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, the wilderness of Judea, when it says wilderness, think desert, rocky grounds, uh, a few random, you know, evergreen, you know, little trees here or there, but mostly just rocky ground, uh, sandy soil. And here he is saying, God, I, I earnestly seek you. Now, all the, all, the, all the verbs in the Hebrew here, they're what they call that they're imperfect. Which all, what all that means is saying that when he says things like, you, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. He, he's talking about a earnest, uh, a seeking of God that had began but has not stopped. And so commentators look at this and they say, you know, this is David's faith that he's talking about is not coming out of desperation saying, oh my gosh, my, my son's trying to kill me. This is a faith that, that um, precludes that. It's a faith that comes before that. And so David's just kind of continuing a faith that was already with him, and he carried it on into this exile that he is currently in. So this is essentially what we're reading is David's way of life when dealing with whatever life brought him. His faith had been carried from the past into the circumstance, and, and this is how David sought God. This was the culture of David seeking after God in his life. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He's declaring that you aren't just God, but you're my God. My soul thirsts for you. This is not a, a crisis response. This is a way of life for him. And once he, he hungered and thirsted and, and was fainting after God, um, what, what did he, how, how did he feel that? What was the fuel for that hunger and thirst? In verse 2 we see, it says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Worship was what fueled him. Worship was, was, was what fueled this, this, this desire after God. And if you look at the word soul in, in, in the Hebrew, in verse 1, you have soul multiple times you have in referring to this word. So the word is nefesh. You guys say it, nefesh. All right, so, so the word soul, when we think of soul as Americans in our Western world, we think of this immaterial spirit kind of thing that's maybe inside of us, and we can't see it, and it's like it's a part of us, but also can be kind of separate from us, and whatever that conjures up. And that's kind of an unfortunate translation, uh, because the word nefesh means whole person. Think of your mind, your heart, uh, all of you, like all of your affections, including even your, your hands, your feet, like all, the whole entire person of who you are, that's what that word nefesh was referring to, right? All of David is fainting and looking after God. All, all of David is, 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 is seeking him. Um, and what this does inside of us, when your whole person is seeking, there, there's a quote um, from, from Aristotle that I, that I love. In his ethics, he says that, um, that uh, the integrated life, and just listen to these words, they're so wise, I think David is, amplifies this, um, he says, is when your heart is desiring all of the same thing, right, continually, all the time. Like, there's no conflict in your heart. There's no, uh, you know, I want this, but, oh, man, I really do want this. The, the integrated life is saying, no, 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 all of your heart is pursuing the same thing. Now, David is imperfect. We know that he's a sinner, so we know that at all times that is not actually happening in our lives. That's not going to be perfectly happening. But that's kind of the goal is the integrated life. So when David says, my whole soul is seeking after God, he's saying, um, there's, there's, I have one desire, and I'm pursuing one desire, and I want that one desire. I don't want conflicts in my life to interrupt this. I want my whole person to be seeking after God, and worship is what fuels this for David. And there's kind of a, a progression here. You know, when, when you find God, 
and your whole person is seeking after him, you start discovering things. It's like you, you become, um, as we'll see, you know, as we go, and maybe I'm sure if, if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you've seen this. There's like progressions in our, in our growth in Christ where uh, God is just like a vast sea. I'm using the ocean language because I want you guys to move to New Jersey to help me plant. So, you know, you know ocean, right? It's so big and vast, and you can just explore it. There's still, if there's areas of the world we haven't explored, it's the ocean. There's still places we can't even get to, and that's who God is. We can never exhaust him as we explore him. And we start discovering something real, something so much, so much more beautiful. It's like when I was 18, I loved Hungry Man XL frozen dinners. Whoever ate those? Come on, there we go. Come on, man. Yep, 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 yep. Don't be ashamed. I used to live off of that stuff, and I went up in the hospital with ulcers. I don't know why, but I used to love that stuff. And it's like transitioning from a Hungry Man XL to, like, real food, right? It's like, oh, this is food. I thought that. What's, this, actually, this is actually better. It's, it's harder. I can't just throw this in the microwave, you know, but it's actually nice. This is real food. That's what happens when we discover God. We're discovering something so much deeper and real, so much better than the Hungry Man frozen dinners. Verse 3 because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David found a discovery. The love he found in God, he says, ultimately is better than life at its best. What a beautiful verse. The love he found in God is better than life at its best. The word used here is hesed love. It is a committed love. It is not based on a, on, um, a response from the object loved. Right? We so often love things in order that what, 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 what the return is for us is why we love that object. But Hested love is a committed love. It's a steadfast love that says, you know, I'm going to love you regardless of your response to me. And this is referring to kind of that, that love that ultimately is, is the cause of our election in God. Not because of your works, not because of who you are. In Deuteronomy 7, when he chose Israel, he said, it's, it's not because you're the greatest of nations, because I love you. That's Hested love. Right? That's the love that he says. Because of that love, right? Because of your love, God, uh, when I discover that, I'm, I'm learning that life at its best, you're still better than life at its best. Um, listen to this quote from, from um, Augustine, or if you think you're smart, Augustine, how do you want to pronounce his name? Um, he wrote this in his Confessions, right? And this is the, when Augustine was seeking in this life, right, the best of things. He was seeking things that would ultimately deliver this kind of joy, this, 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 this thing that David is honest, you know, obviously searching for. He was seeking for and, and things, and we learn from him that uh, he learned that they aren't delivering. Listen to um, Augustine's words from his confessions. If you haven't read the book, please read the book. It's so good. He says this, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were, with, you were within, and I was in the external world, and I sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath, and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Augustine discovered what David did. God's love is, is so much better than any other lovely thing. 
and it is better than life at its best. Nothing in this world that we seek after can deliver anything remotely close to what God can provide just by being himself. That's what he was trying to say. But when we discover this love of God, First uh, John 4 is very clear that God himself is love. First John 4, 16. God is love. So when we discover that love from God, we're not discovering something that God gives. We're discovering something that God is. We're discovering God himself. That's who he is. God cannot not love. I don't know how else to say that. It's who he is. And when we discover this deep love of God, John is, is saying this, we discover God himself, right? And this is what happens. When we discover God himself, we discover the, the, the depths and wonders of him. Psalm 63, 5 through 8, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Um, you ever remember the best meal you ever ate? Like the, just the best food, best dinner you ever had? I don't know. I'm a skinny guy, but, you know, I can eat a lot of food. Although I hit 30 and something's happening. I'm like gaining weight. I don't know what happened. But I still enjoy food. I was in Florida. I grew up in Georgia, right? So we went to Florida often when I was a kid. We were in New Smyrna Beach. It was like uh, July, I think, or maybe June. And uh, th- th- this restaurant was, was literally a hole-in-the-wall place. If you're in places like that, find the hole-in-the-wall place. The food's way better there. And we're on the beach. You know, the sand's like... Through the, through the boards on the floor, like the restaurant's like literally on the beach. It's all open there. The breeze is coming in, right? And you just kind of smell the salt in the air. And they, they deliver me this food. And I'll never forget it. It was grouper stuffed with crab. I mean, just like an inch of butter all over it. And this food just, it just melted in my mouth. And I just wanted so bad. To, I was probably 16 or something. Tell my parents, Can I have a whole other entree, two more, you know. Like, I wanted more of it, but it was over. But it was so good. I don't know if it's really that good, but, you know, your memory plays tricks on you, but, man, it was good. And, and I think of that meal, all right? Think of whatever meal in your mind. Like, I remember that, you know. David is saying, it's like having that in front of you all the time, but it never actually ends. Like, you, you're, you're satisfied. Like, I, I was satisfied when I ate that meal, but the next morning I needed breakfast because I was hungry again. But David says, after this meal, like, you, you're not going to get hungry again. Like, it's always there, and it's rich, and it's wonderful, and it's, it's splendid, and it's, it's the best meal you ever had. It's rich, right? You'll be satisfied with it. And once we're satisfied with God, look at verse 6. And this is amazing. Remember, David's sleeping on a cave, in a, on the floor, probably, right, in a cave. Somebody's trying to kill him, his own son. And it seems like he's sleeping like a baby. You ever slept with anxiety where you can't just sleep? Your mind's running because of whatever's happening in your life? Well, David had a lot going on. And listen to what he says. I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of the wings I will sing for joy. It sounds like he's sleeping pretty well at night. Even in the midst of all the chaos happening in his life, he's sleeping pretty soundly. And he's worshiping even in his sleep. Well, how is that happening? Well, he knows that God is with him. Right? He knows that God is with him. He knows that his, ultimately if he is with God, then regardless of the outcome... He has God, and he's satisfied. And he has that kind of faith in God that some, even seems to be beyond reason to some degree. For you have been my help, and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul, my nefesh, my whole body, my whole person clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So the idea is this. Um, God's love is better than life at its best. But it also provides peace when life is at its worst. Say it one more time. God's love is better than life at its best when you're flourishing, when you're prospering, when, when there's no conflict or crisis or, or, or suffering in your life, when life is just good. 
Um, it also provides peace when life is at its worst. It doesn't take you out. God indeed does help his children, and we are to give thanks. David recognizes that this love from God has a protective measure around him, right? His whole person clings to God. And look at the end of the psalm. It ends with David seeking deliverance, right? Verses 9, 10, and 11. He, he prays, God, I, I do pray that in your justice you would deliver me and, and punish these wrongdoers, right? But what I'm arguing this morning is this. The kind of faith David had is not requiring that deliverance. If he wasn't delivered, would his faith be shaken? Like, if that deliverance didn't come and Absalom actually came and killed him, would David be like, oh, God, you know, or, or, or he, you know, kicked him out of the country or, you know, whatever happened, and David never was king again? Would David's faith be, oh, I guess you don't love me, God. I guess, I don't know, you must have abandoned me. And, of course, you read the Psalms. These are real emotions. All of us feel these things, and it's perfectly okay to feel those things, we're human beings, and we, 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 will, we will be uh, challenged by the events in life when they come, no doubt. But David seems to have such a faith that we just looked at in these verses that is not dependent on the circumstances going good for his faith to remain, right? What keeps us from having this kind of faith? And of course, I'm not putting David up as like the hero of heroes because we know that the reason why David's hiding in the cave is because of his own sin, Right, So he's very much a flawed person. What keeps us from having such faith? I would argue that it's idolatry. We like to treat ordinary things in life as if their love or the good things we receive from them delivers that better-than-life result. And when we do so, this is what we are saying. If only this thing delivers, then my life will be at its best. Or if this thing will be relieved, then life will be at its best, and then I'll be happy. Uh, from Mice and Men, uh, John Steinbeck, right? If you read that book before, you have these two characters, George and Lenny. They're, dort, they're uh, two dirt poor ranch workers in the Great Depression era, right out west, trying to find work. Uh, they have a dream of owning their own ranch one day, right? Of being out of the slums, of being out of the, the poverty of just being these hired hands, and actually owning property one day. And they're explaining this uh, w- w- with a friend of theirs, his name is Crooks, and this is what their friend Crooks. Uh, responds to hearing their dream. He says this, I see hundreds of, men, hundreds of men come by on the road and on their ranches with their bindles on their backs and the same thing in their heads, same dreams in their heads. Hundreds of them. They come and they quit and they go on and every one of them's got a little piece of land in his head and never one of them gets it. Just like heaven. Everybody wants a little piece of land. I read plenty of books out here. Nobody ever gets to heaven. Nobody ever gets land. It's just in their head. They're all the time talking about it, but it's just in their head. This is what he was trying to tell his friends. They all want the good land, this image for them that was going to be the good life. No longer a low-paying ranch worker who is basking in poverty, but the one who's wealthy and owns their own land and their own ranch. This image for George and Lenny was equivalent to an image of heaven. The only problem with their vision is it's only a repeat of the desires of most everyone else who's in their shoes. And guess what happens? No matter how much they desire it, dream about it, set their hopes on it, it doesn't often come to them. And what happens is it creates a cynicism of life, a cynicism that runs throughout the entire novel that ultimately your dreams are going to be crushed and unfulfilled if that's what you're basing your hope and joy on because there's so many obstacles in our human life that prevents those things from happening. And if, it is, if that's what heaven is supposed to be like, all your dreams fulfilled, then maybe heaven itself Ah, maybe we'll never even get there. That's what the book is trying to say, right? 
Crooks made an underhanded statement that if God isn't going to deliver the idea of heaven today, then maybe their dream along with heaven itself is just something in their heads. This is a faith that is dependent on receiving their dreams. And when they do not receive it, it even affects their faith in God and whatever ideas they had about it. The whole book's title came from this wonderful poem by Robert Burns. Listen to this quote from the poem. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often astray and lead us not but grief and pain for promised joy. I've seen Christians be rocked when their goals and dreams and circumstances are crushed and when they think they deserve something better or labored for only to have it robbed from them. Our faith can be shaken. There's two ways that people respond to this. If, if you're a secular person, right, uh, the very joy of life can get attacked, right? How can I enjoy life when it only delivers the things that do not make me happy? How can I enjoy life when everything good is only seems to be but a season? And there comes a cynicism that builds. And then secular people often start trying things in hopes that something good will come their way. Good deeds, pay it forward, karma, the ideas that maybe just maybe if I do some good deeds, the universe will align itself in such a way that good vibes will come my way. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that, right? There's good vibes in this place. I need good vibes, you know, that kind of idea. But it's dependent on them actually doing good deeds and maybe bring that stuff back to them. But if you consider yourself a, a, a religious person, a Christian, here's the ways that we often react very similarly, right? We know that God is good. We understand that whatever circumstances, dreams, or desired outcomes of a situation we are looking for is good in our eyes. Like, this is a good thing. So God, you're good. This is a good thing. Therefore, won't the good God give us the good thing? God, please, could you be so kind as to give me this or give me that or relieve me from this or leave me for that? But then he doesn't. And this is what we say. And be honest. I mean, we've all probably said this or thought about it. If I were God, I would definitely have not allowed this to happen or allowed that to happen. Is God good? Your faith is shaken, right? Your faith is shakable just like George and Lenny's from that story because your love ultimately was not in God. It was in the thing that you were trying to get from God. So both sides of that coin for the religious and the secular, they're pursuing idolatry, Right? And we consider that our bad situation can be managed by our good works. I think we all can relate to that to some degree. So in this story, we go on the back end of the sermon now. What do we do? Like, how, how, what can rescue us from this pitiful state that we find ourselves in? By nature, this is how we, we act when we find ourselves sitting in the cave on the desert floor. Life is really difficult, right? Um, we find ourselves not really knowing what to do, not knowing how to understand these things from God. And again, I'm not making light of this stuff, but this is really challenging, difficult things. So in this story of David running from Absalom, 2 Samuel 15 says, when David crossed the path of the Mount of Olives, you know, the temple's right here in Jerusalem, and kind of uh, behind right here is the Mount of Olives, right? So David was in exile. He was going this way. The tabernacle's there in those days. He was leaving Jerusalem. He crossed the path of the Mount of Olives, and says he was weeping as he went. Yes, his faith was strong and firm in God, but he was a human being, and he was, he was broken by this situation, right? It did break his heart. But many centuries later, one of his great-great-grandchildren would be walking the same path. But instead of leaving Jerusalem, fleeing those who wanted his life, he was actually going towards the people who wanted to kill him, knowing very well what was in store for him. He also wept at the Mount of Olives, stopping in the garden and spending the entire night in prayer, sweating great drops of blood in absolute 
agony. And he knew that for all of humankind, there lie these great obstacles of idolatry, keeping them from discovering and knowing and loving and receiving God. The God they naturally worshipped was this self. And when it's heinous sin, the natural state of man, Jesus knew that to rescue them from themselves meant that he himself must die as if he were one of them, as if he himself were an idolater. He was killed by the Jews for being a blasphemer, the very crime we commit when we bow down to our goals and our dreams and desires and job promotions and children. When we worship them, looking for life at its best, thinking that will bring the satisfaction, we become also blasphemers. And in his death, Jesus showed us how to love. He showed us that true nature of love, this tested love that David discovered. Paul said in Romans, right, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. We weren't even looking for this, but he chose to do so because of a committed love toward his God that he set on us, a love that was not contingent on our accepting of it, right? Because we couldn't. Indeed, his death and resurrection set in motion a love for us that was set on us before the very foundations of the world, as Ephesians 1 states. This love, it paid for our sin. He gives us a new heart, a new flesh by the gift of his spirit. And when this moment happens, when we hit the moment of realization that God loves us through his son Jesus because of the gospel, because of all of our sins are wiped and forgiven Forever and ever, our eyes become open. Theologians call this regeneration. Our heart turns. It becomes awakened. It's alive, right? The Valley of Dry Bones, that famous story in Ezekiel, we were dead, but God gives us life. And we say, I love you and I need you. And wow, I hate my sin. Please, I don't want my sin anymore. I need you. How I am tired from bowing down to all of these idols. I need you and I need you alone. When we discover the love of God, we are not simply discovering an action. No, as we said before, God is love. We are discovering God himself through the gospel. We realize that those dreams and all the things that we were pursuing, um, but we were treating them as ultimate things. We realize that receiving God in Christ is far better than receiving any of those things. As David said, the love of God, God himself, is better than life at its best. And then there's that freedom that comes our way. We see David having when life is at its best or at its worst. We can say that. Your love is better than life. I'm still going to praise you. Although I'm sleeping on this desert floor, hiding from my own son, I'm, I lay here thinking of you sweetly. When I think of you, I think, I feel as if I'm eating that never-ending grouper stuffed with crab forever and ever, right? I'm so satisfied before you. In summary, we enjoy God and love him for who he is. And that is why we go to him. And that's, that's the important thing here. We love God for who he is. And that is what we are drawing people into Christianity for. Here is God. You want to know God? It's only because of Jesus Christ. And it's like a key that enters the human heart that says, okay, this is why I exist. To know God. It only happens through Jesus. This is why I exist. And that's the joy we receive we receive God himself. Paul just sums this up beautifully on the back end of our sermon here. Romans 8, one of the grandest passages of all of Scripture. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is it. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in closing, there's a picture I sent last minute here. If it should pop up. My son Nathaniel. There he is. Yeah, of course. He gets everybody's, ah, uh, you know. We were in the airport yesterday, and literally everybody was just stopped. He just smiles at everybody. He's such a good... So he's eight months old. And I love this kid. Of course, he's my son. But um, there's very few things I can... He's not bottle-fed. And so I, at this stage of life, I don't have much to offer him. There's not much there. Um, I can hold him, look at him, maybe put a spoonful of stuff in his... That's about it. But he, at dinner time, this is what he does to me. He stares at me. And he won't... If you meet him, he'll be here a little bit. He'll stare at you, too, because that's what he does. But he stares at me, and he grins. His eyes are dreamy and glowing and twinkling, and it's, he just can't help but stare back. And he just stares at me. He starts laughing sometimes. He just stares at me. This kid loves me. And I'm like, why? I don't have anything to offer him. He loves me because I'm his father. That's why he loves me. That's the love that I'm calling you guys to. It's Father's Day. Love God as your father because he's God, because of who he is. Don't bow down to the gifts that he gives you. Bow down to the giver himself. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, our time this morning. I pray that you would just uh, bring us um, before you and help us to, to discover your glory and just your being and who you are. May it just uh, uh, crush any idols in our heart, free us from those chains of slavery, and may we love you um, for who you are. Thank you for the gospel, for Jesus who gave us access to our Father. Without him and the help of your spirit, none of this, none of this love that we're seeking would be possible. But thank you, God, that you gave us the gift of yourself through your Son. Um, we love you. pray this in your name. Amen.